love, kindness, human connection. These are some of the things we talk about on the Danny Painter Show. It's a thing. This show is intended for a more mature audience. We might sometimes say bad words. This week on the Danny Painter Show, Antoinette Lee Toscano joins me. She's a co-creator on ExoTV on the channel Whitewater TV. And she has a story that's going to inspire you. We're just we're just gonna go. We don't have an intro or anything, so we're just gonna go if that's okay. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so Antoinette Lee Toscano is there are so many things, a powerhouse is what I want to say. An absolute powerhouse. There are There is a poll page over here to my left of all of the things that this incredible human being does and takes part in and supports and champions and talks about. And we're going to try and get into as much of it as possible. But she's also an XOTV creator. And that is how I found out about her. And she's also a writer and a blogger and just a great human. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Danny. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you. Let's start at the very, very, very beginning. You identify as cross-cultural. You have very many heritages. I can relate. Tell me about you, where you come from, what makes you you, all of these things. Oh, well, so... Oddly enough, I only just found out about all of my heritages in 2020 because I'm adopted and my adoption was sealed. I knew just a couple of things. I knew that my mother is that she had Jamaican heritage. They said Indian heritage. But when they told me that in my gut, I knew that was wrong. Just a feeling. And that my father is African-American. And later I received my DNA test results and learned that I'm 70% Nigerian, 26% Irish. And then the remaining 4% is indigenous Jamaican and from Spain and Iceland, Greenland, like all of the people. (laughs) (laughs) We're all such a mess. You know, like we, we all think that we come from one place, but we really don't. Our ancestors were doing things that we don't even know about, which is great because it means, okay, well, I mean, twofold. It could mean that we have ancestral trauma from like very many different places, but it could, it also means that we are actually all more alike than we are, than we ever were different. And I think absolutely that's the most important thing. Okay, so you were adopted. Tell me about this. Tell me about growing up. Tell me about the things that shaped you. So I grew up mostly in an institutional setting, believe it or not. I was uh, taken into foster care and then later adopted by the same family, a Black family. I make that distinction because some people hear me talk and they go, oh, wow, you must have been raised by white people. You speak so well. Well, I have a master's degree. I should sound like I have a master's degree, right? So that's like cultural baggage that they're just putting on me. And so I make the distinction to say that Black families raise Black kids who look like me and sound like me and behave like me, right? And carry themselves like me throughout the world. And so I was taken into this family. They had four other children. They were all older than me. So 14, 12, six, and five years older than me. And I was the youngest. And it was two weeks before my fourth birthday. Wow. And so that's significant because I remember things from 
being three years old. And it was confirmed through some of the information in my adoption records that were released to my adoptive parents. And so I remember, you know, the institutional setting, I believe, caused me to really rely on my primal brain. So knowing the tone and tenor and body language of the adult caregivers and what that meant, were they in a good mood or a bad mood? Would I get hit? Would I get reprimanded? You know, reprimanding was like, it felt abusive, right? So I carry that with me as this three-year-old entering a new home. And for my birthday, my brother, who's 14 years older than me, was already at university. And he came home with a book for my birthday, and it was Dr. Seuss's Cat in the Hat. And the next day, he taught me how to read. Like I was reading on my own after one day. So I remember feeling like... (laughs) because he was at university and my parents taught me how to write. And by his next visit, I could use a dictionary and I could write letters. I could use a typewriter by the end of the summer of my fourth birthday. And he, he would talk with me as if I were another adult, really. So he was 18. I was 14. I had questions about the world and life and myself and, you know, the things, and he could explain them to me, which was wonderful because I didn't have agency as a young child in an institutional setting, you were told what to do, how to do it, what to think, what to feel sometimes. And so from age four to five, I believe that was really the only time in my life that I felt like I had agency, Wow! like complete agency. But I felt like most of my adult life, I had to fight for agency. I had to fight for the ability to to decide who I am and how I would show up in the world because there's so much pressure. We all have pressure, whether you're male or female or non-binary, doesn't matter your ethnicity. We all have family pressure, peer group pressure, ethnic pressure, cultural pressure, religious pressure to be who everybody else wants us to be. Sometimes it's easier to just go along to get along because when you live an authentic life, you often are on the outside because you can make other people who are not living authentically really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. when you stand in your truth, right? All of the time. And I just remember being very young and feeling like, why do I have to fight to be who I am, who I feel on the inside. I have felt like my whole life I had to defend it. I had to defend the things that I liked, the places that I wanted to go, what I wanted to do, how I wanted to show up in the world. And and I thought so many times, I like me. (laughs) Why don't other people like me, (laughs) right? There is so much, so much there. Firstly, obviously living in South Africa, we have 11 official languages and everyone has a different accent and everyone comes from a different part of the country. And so I think living here, I have become very aware that not everyone sounds the same and you may not sound the same as your parents. So my dad is Zulu and my mom is Jewish and I don't sound like either of them. And they all, everyone in my family speaks a different language that we, some of us understand and some of us don't. But I think we've, in my family at least, have realized that English is a language. It's not a level of intelligence. And mm-hmm. your accent is just your accent. And someone who has a Zulu accent or a French accent or an English accent, it doesn't mean that you are lesser. And it just, it upsets me so much when I hear you feeling the need to defend. And it just takes me right back to, guys, it's 2021. We cannot be judging people's intelligence based on what they're wearing, how they sound, how they show up on, and what color their skin is. Or 
or the color that they have on their skin. It's, it's, it's absolutely mind blowing to me. But then also I feel like being adopted, it must be, I've, this is a whole new experience for me. I've never engaged with someone who, who was adopted and, you know, it must be so terrifying to move from even, even though it's an institution, it's still safe. It's what you know to somewhere completely new with different people. And it must have been absolutely terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. And it was the worst possible day to come into a new family. My two siblings who are closer to my age were having a birthday party and I ruined the party <laughs> because uh, my mom and the woman who turned out to be my godmother later, they were best, our, well, they're no longer with us, but they were best friends and they lived in one house and we lived in the, the next house directly next to it. And they came, my mother and her best friend came get me and they brought me home. Well, I should back up. It began with a phone call. <laughs> my mother was preparing for the birthday party for my two sisters and she got a phone call that, you know, a an almost four-year-old needs placement and would you come and get her? And she said, no one hung up. <laughs> <laughs> but she she told her best friend, can you believe these people called me? Can you believe they called me about another kid and I'm all so busy and, oh, you know, she's her hair is on fire at the moment. And she said, let's go get her. <laughs> my godmother did. So they dropped everything and they came and got me. And my godmother finished preparing for the party while my mother took me shopping. She opened my little suitcase, like all the worldly possessions I had and goes, no, no. Oh my God, you wore this? <laughs> wow, the trauma. Oh, I know she's doing good, but the trauma of all my stuff. <laughs> right. So everything went out. The, the few toys that I had, my clothes, my luggage just went out into the trash and we went shopping and it was like a whirlwind shopping tour. And so I come home and my sister's friends are like, oh my goodness, who's this little girl? And my mom is like, it's your new sister. And no one paid any more attention to my siblings. <laughs> and I cried for like six hours. <laughs> and then my dad worked at night and he owned a business also. And so he, he was very tired and he wakes up to these screaming little girls like, oh, there's a new baby. He's like, whose kid is this? <laughs> She's like, yours. <laughs> He's like, what? So that's how. I came into this family. <laughs> I love your family. I just need to tell you, your family sounds like my family. Your yeah. family sounds so the same, like so the same. So you grow up in this family. You you seem pretty well adjusted. So I think that you faced some of your shit that you needed to face. But then I read that you're also an army veteran. This is a big deal for me because, and no one knows this, when I was younger, we have the South African National Defense Force and I wanted to study medicine and I also wanted to be in the army. I've been obsessed about being in the, in, in the army in some way, shape or form. And I thought that I would go and serve in the SANDF and in the meantime, study medicine and then work for them. 
And then obviously things happen and I, I ended up working in, in the entertainment industry. But whenever I read or hear about someone that was in the army, I just immediately, and I know this is so problematic, but immediately there's a whole new level of respect because of what you had to give up. So please tell me about that. That's so interesting for me. I really want to thank you for seeing that I had to give up a lot because I don't really think whether it's the American army, the Israeli army, any army, every service member gives up a lot. Because if you yeah. think about it, we we enter the military in our prime, right? When you know, I did some university before going into the army, but I also finished university in the army, continued my education. But while my peers were graduating, getting multiple advanced degrees and um, building up a resume, I too was building up a resume, but it was different. And so when you get out of the army, employers don't always understand and appreciate the skills that you do learn. For example, by the time I was 19 years old, I had been in charge of people in the U.S. and in foreign countries, you know, foreign nationals that work with the United States Army. I had been in charge of multiple millions of dollars in budgets and people and all of the things, spoke multiple languages, traveled the world, you know, by my mid-30s. And employers often don't appreciate that I gave up something in service of my country. I bring other skills to the workforce, but I may not have worked in this particular job for um, as long as my peers. Why was that something that you wanted to do? Well, my family is very patriotic. My father uh, served in both the Korean War and World War II. Voluntarily, he didn't wait to be called up. He felt like it was the patriotic duty of every American. <laughs> and he raised his children to feel the same way. My brother, the one that's 14 years older than me, he did not feel the same way. And I understand his point of view. His point of view was, I'm a second-class citizen in my own country by virtue of having black skin. And now you want me to go put my life on the line? Can I at least, you know, not have to sit in the back of the bus? right? Because that's how he grew up. So I understand his point of view, but I was very patriotic. And my father talks about how when I was five years old, I declared that I was joining the army. And I absolutely did do that. <laughs> like I stood, I stood up in the middle of a movie and declared that I'm joining the army when I grew up. And I never changed that. But I came to my parents' home kind of with a sense of who I was. But then after learning to read that that year between age four and five, when I learned to read and I could discuss these heady topics, because remember, I'm, I had one children's book in my entire life. And that was that first book. And then I never read a children's book after that. I only read the books that my much older siblings had been reading because those were the books on the family bookshelf. Mm -hmm. And my brother sent me his books from university. So I think maybe by first grade, I had already been, read Beowulf and decided I am Beowulf. I'm not a maiden. I'm not the queen. I am Beowulf. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to slay all the dragons. <laughs> yes. You know, and so, so that was really part of my makeup. My ancestors had to have been warriors because I came out of the womb knowing that I was a warrior, not a warrior princess. Warrior, <laughs> not so, not someone's shield maiden, unless it's in the Viking sense where shield maidens were, you know, women who were warriors, right? But I felt like 
I am physically and mentally strong. I always have been. Not everyone is and no judgment. I had that skill set. It was an in, innate and I felt like I should use it because I wanted to protect people. Not that I wanted to go make war against people. I wanted to be the protector of the citizens of my country because I felt like I could, right? And, you know, I that's part of living authentically. I knew who I was by the time I was definitely by five years old. I knew who I was. You are an advocate for people with traumatic brain injury and health challenges. And I don't feel like this is something that you do just off the cuff. Um, (laughs) Is there a story here? There is a story here. So when I was, I guess about 19, I was rappelling down a mountain in uh, Korea while I was in the army. And I, I slipped. My belay person didn't react quickly and I got hurt. I didn't fall to the ground, but I uh, slammed into the mountain first. Um, I broke my coccyx and sacrum uh, in my back and then a traumatic brain injury. On the grand scheme of things, I had a mild traumatic brain injury, but it is an injury to your brain. It's a permanent injury and you don't fully recover from that. And when you damage your spine, you break bones in your spine, you will never fully recover from that. And this is not an uncommon thing that I'm about to say. Brain injuries are quite common in the military, in peacetime and in wartime. Broken bones are very common. And so a lot of us, if not most military people, will leave the military in their 20s and 30s with arthritis already. So my degenerative arthritis started in my late 20s. And in each sort of milestone year, so like my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, something happens in my brain and my brain stops communicating to my spine. (laughs) and, you know, to my limbs. And I often have difficulty walking. I experience um, very debilitating migraines that sometimes last 28 consecutive days without relief. So I can take medication and it will like take the edge off, never gets rid of it completely. The longest has been 28 consecutive days. The other thing that I experience as a result of my brain injury is difficulty judging distance. And you don't really realize how much that affects your life, but parking a car, jumping off a surfboard, for example, you know, you fall backwards and then you're like, whoa, that was a big drop, right? Because it's a six foot wave or something, right? And you fall off your board. So I can't judge how far a fall is going to be because I can't judge depth or distance very well. I'm also slightly colorblind. I get ocular migraines in combination with traditional migraines. And so for me, the way that I experience an ocular migraine through my left eye is it's if I'm looking through the bottom of a a a thick glass or a bottle. Everything's distorted. I can only see colors, shapes, and movement. My right eye, I'm totally blind. I can't see a thing. It doesn't go black. It goes as if I stared into a bright light and then it's just like a white blinding light in my right eye. And so seven years ago, just seven years ago, I had a really bad episode that lasted about 18 months or so. And I had to use a walker. I was using a service dog to help me. And I really thought that was going to be my life. I really thought that for the rest of my life, I'm going to be using a service dog and a walker. And, you know, this is just it. (laughs) 
But then I found whitewater kayaking. <laughs> this is where before, we get into the good stuff. Okay. But before I say that, I wanted to say that before I got better, I realized that, you know, the brain is so tricky, so difficult to diagnose, you know, and you don't know if, is this permanent? Is it temporary? You know, doctors are trying their best. Body is complicated and and you can't always get a a fast answer. And so what I learned is that I have to be my own best advocate. I have to do my own research. You can't wait for a doctor to help to save you. They can help you, but you can't rely on them or the system, the healthcare system to help you, to save you. That's something you really have to do yourself, you know? And so I took my healthcare into my own hands and I did lots of research and I had to change a lot of things to get healthy. But now today I'm very healthy. But seven years ago, I was still using the walker. I still had to have a service dog because I could lose my vision at any given moment. And I've been on a walk like three miles away from my home in a park, started to thunder and lightning. And I'm like, oh, I've got to get out of this park. And all of a sudden I'm blind. Like I can see colors and shapes. (laughs) It's pouring down rain and I, it's, I can't get out of the park on my own. So I told my dog, find home. And so we crossed multiple streets. I didn't get hit by a car because she stopped at the right time, waited for the traffic. And I had to trust my dog in the rain and thunder and lightning. And I'm blind. And oh, I'm also stopping because I'm ill. I'm just like, you know, when you have, you know, very bad migraines, you're, you're tossing your cookings, your cookies, right? (laughs) So I'm ill. And she got me home. We're a team. So she can tell me the reason I don't need her to go everywhere with me now is because before getting her, I couldn't feel that tiny little pinprick behind my right eye. And 30 minutes later, I would be blind. I didn't feel it. I Because you're busy with your life and then you feel a little thing and you're like, oh, there's something in my eye that hurt. You go on with your day and now you're blind. You, you know, you've got this ocular migraine condition. And so she was trained using my saliva when I have a migraine to smell in advance chemical changes in my body that I experience when I'm getting a migraine. And so she would give me a 30 minute lead. So if I'm in the car, she'll tap my shoulder. If I am standing, she'll tap my leg with her nose. She's like, hey, idiot, you're, you're getting sick. Let's get somewhere get safe. <laughs> this is not a good situation. <laughs> wow. Know? And and it's funny because if I ignore her and I'm like, okay, one minute, she's like, no, let's go, right? Now she can give me the signal, like go take some medicine. It can either prevent it from coming on or make it last a shorter time, less intense. But I didn't have those skills before she taught me what to look for. So now I'm my own warning signal. <laughs> Please tell your dog I love her. Let's talk about how I found out about you. You have a channel called Whitewater TV and you you do all the things I want to do. You're really? actually, yeah, your goal's hard for me. I've never gone white, white water rafting, white river rafting. And it's, we have the most incredible ones here somewhere. And you actually even get like a little, a serpent necklace if you do the hard one. And a lot of my friends get the necklace and then I get very sad because I've never, I've just never been. But you, you've been doing it and you've been doing it 
really well and you've been kind of taking us along on the ride. Talk to me about how, how you found this in that seven-year period and how it's evolved to what it is now. I always knew that I was a nature person, which was difficult because my parents were cosmopolitan. They didn't want to sweat. By the time I came along, they were like, if it doesn't involve white linen, I, yeah, I don't really want to know. (laughs) (laughs) When people look at me, they don't think that I am an extreme sport adventurer because, you know, I have on the makeup and, and things like that. People look at me and don't think that I would be an adventurer. So I'm saying this to all of the young girls and young women and even men who think, well, I don't really think of myself as very athletic, but I would like a deeper connection to nature and I would like to spend more time outdoors. There's a place and a sport and a group and a community for everyone. And so so I got into extreme sports. It, It was actually a lifelong goal, like deep connection to nature. It restores me. It rejuvenates me. When I was very sick, I couldn't really go outdoors very, very much or very often because I didn't know when I would have a health challenge. So I needed to figure out how I can balance my health needs and outdoor adventuring. And and I figured it out. So when there's a will, there's a way. Been adventuring for about nine years now. I've been kayaking for seven years. Um, I started off with the archery first. And so I hike and climb and fish and ice fish and (laughs) what else? Kayak and river surf and all of the things, raft and multi-day trips out in the outback. I got into it because I, again, seven years ago, I had this episode I was very ill at the time. I could barely walk down the hall to physical therapy, but I was sitting in the waiting room and I saw a poster and it was of some people on a river in bright colored boats. They were kayaks. I didn't know that at the time. And then there was a little scene of people sitting around a campfire with some tents in the background and they were happy. And I thought, that's me. That's the life I always meant to do, to live. And so I went into physical therapy and I told them about the poster I saw. And I said, is it possible for me to do that? And they said, yeah, recreational therapy is um, uh, really good for the mind and body. And so uh, I think it was two weeks later or maybe one week later, I was in my first kayak (laughs) learning all of the things. And so I started kayaking still on my walker. Wow. Yeah. And I have friends now who have upper body amputation, lower body amputation. They kayak at a level that's much higher than mine. I am really just sort of an intermediate kayaker. I'm not even like a super great kayaker (laughs) yet, yet. (laughs) I, I had to have my shoulder reconnected to my bicep recently. So I'm hoping this year I become a super great kayaker because it's finally (laughs) fixed. So, so yeah, that's how I got started. And, you know, my river family, the people that I boat with, hike with, kayak and all of the things, we are friends on and off the river. We're very close knit. They showed up for me and cooked for me and my boyfriend. They brought meals when I had shoulder surgery. They bring meals when I just say, hey, I'd really like to have some of your whatever you make. And and they'll cook for me. And most of these people are men, actually. <laughs> but we're that 
close knit of a group. You know, when someone's moving, we all show up. Don't hire a moving van. You've got friends. That's what we're for, right? And so we're just a super close knit family. You know, they're selected family. I feel really grateful to have this experience. I feel grateful that I can enjoy the outdoors with women and men and and LGBTQA plus folks. And we are just like one, right? It's the most beautiful thing ever. Now, that's not the case for all people of color or for all women or for all members of the LGBTQA plus community. You know, there is still currently today things happening out there, but we don't stop going to work because we might experience misogyny or racism or whatever. Mm. Why should we not go to the outdoors? Because we might experience because you may not experience it, right? And if you do experience it one time, it doesn't mean it's going to be every time. So I encourage everyone, everyone has a human right to the outdoors. It does, it's not owned or possessed by any particular group of people. It's accessible to people without a lot of financial resources, as well as wealthy people and women and men and non-binary folks equally, right? But so many of us believe that it's not accessible to us for all of the various reasons. And once you determine that this lifestyle is for you, it's a beautiful and welcoming lifestyle. And I have received so many health and um social benefits from outdoor adventuring and it really and I call it a lifestyle because it really is once you take up your first adventure sport like mine was um, bow hunting then the next one was kayaking and then I think hiking from there climbing after that camping of course goes hand in hand with all of it you just expand your interest and It also like really helped to clean up my, like I never had a bad diet because both my parents had health challenges. So I grew up eating healthy. It helped me to clean up my diet even more. And it, and that helped me to reverse some of my own health challenges as a result of my brain injury and broken back and, you know, the problem with the migraines. And so that whole lifestyle led me to organic gardening and having a greenhouse and growing my own medicine, like echinacea for immune and mother's wart for I'm 53 and I don't get hot flashes because of mother's wart. Like all of the things just go hand in hand. So it really is an adventure sports lifestyle and you can enter it at any experience level, fitness level or um, economic level as well you know everything that you've said it's almost as if the universe or god or whomever you believe in has been like hammering this in for us because the world shuts down and the only thing we're allowed to do is go and walk within a five kilometer two kilometer radius of your house you can't go to the shops you can't go to the nightclub you can't do any of the the bad things that you were doing before right (laughs) the binge drinking is gone and everyone starts walking And as everyone starts walking, the people that stick to the walking are going, wow, but this is great. And I'm feeling better and I'm not as depressed or anxious. Let me go a little bit further. Let's go on our first ever hike. And I'm seeing, I was seeing this happen 
gradually on Facebook, you know, people that you would never have thought walking, like their high heels were now gone and they're in walking shoes and they're walking. And then all of a sudden diets are changing and they're posting salads and smoothie bowls and going vegan or plant-based mostly and, or doing keto or whatever they're doing. And you're just seeing these people actually, it's almost as if they're evolving and it's all because they went outside. That's how it starts. You've got to just yes. go outside. And it's it's almost as if sunlight and air is magic. And it just, it, it plants a seed and everything snowballs from there. Yeah. You know, we have an expression, if you are a, so there's flat water and then there's moving water or white water. And so if you are a moving water boater, um, you tend to say white water is magic because there is something magical about white water. So for example, if you have a super high stress job, or maybe you're just very anxious person for whatever reason, when you are paddling white water, there are so many things going on between the water and the boulders and the scenery and you, the things, your friends watching out for them, they're watching out for you. You're so focused that you don't think about your worries or your anxieties or your health challenges or any of the things that we, we ruminate about. You're just focused on playing, being in the moment. Your brain goes quiet there's adrenaline. I like to call it positive adrenaline because after, you know, the flight or fight adrenaline rush, you know, you're like, oh, keyed up, right? And anxious. But after this, you're like, well, that was amazing. <laughs> you know, I've got a ton of adrenaline coursing through my body, but that was amazing. And my head feels clear and I feel more creative and productive when I get back to work. There are just so many benefits. And, and I really do believe that white water is magic and, and nature is so healing. And I... I wanted more people of color because in the seven years from coast to coast in the United States that I've paddled whitewater, I've only experienced five other people of color ever in seven years. In seven years. Yeah. And I'm not like a once in a while recreational outdoors person. This is, this is in part of my day-to-day -day life. So like three or four days, we are recreating three or four days a week. We're hiking and camping and, you know, going, taking our boats down to the whitewater park or paddling a river. Um, this year, because I'm getting a stand-up paddleboard, I'll probably do some river surfing and flatwater paddling. So, you know, don't feel like you have to do the super adrenaline filled whitewater stuff. You can go on flat water and just sort of have a peaceful, serene experience on the water. It doesn't have to be raging rapids. You know, that's my jam. It doesn't have to be yours. And I really wanted more people of color to experience this. And so when you know, the protests and marches around the world began in 2020 with calls for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, Jedi. I thought, what could I do to move the needle for other people of color? Because I really felt like I hadn't done it all enough, even though I have offered to teach other people of color how to kayak and take them camping. I was always met with resistance. And in fact, most people called me a white girl and said, black people don't do that. Or like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and 
um, it's okay for them to say no. Not everyone wants to experience the outdoor, but outdoors. But there was a lot of race shaming that was really hurtful. And I would say until about three years ago, I had to code switch in my own community. So normally when you have to code switch, you have to code switch when you're around people who are not of your same ethnic group, for example. I had to code switch around Black people because if I said, if if someone, okay, this is how it went when I was working for corporate America <laughs> and we're talking about what we did over the weekend, I dreaded this question. Like I had an amazing weekend, but I dreaded it because if I answer truthfully in a group of my peers, mo- like uh, either just people of color in general or black women or black men and women, if I answered, well, I hiked here and then I kayaked and then I camped and then I, <laughs> the, somebody and maybe like the whole group sometimes would say, you are such a white girl. That's why you don't have a black card. Black people don't do that. What's wrong with you? Family members used to tell me when I was younger, even before I got seriously into outdoor recreation, that I was kind of an, you know, weird and an embarrassment because I love the outdoors. And like for a lot of people, I couldn't love like Run DMC. And this is, you know, back in the 80s when I was growing up, I couldn't love Run DMC. And I don't know, Willie Nelson at the same time. And and I don't want to choose because all of the things speak to me, you know, I wanted to get other people of color out in nature, especially on whitewater or especially on water in general. And so, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a freelance writer at Cultures Magazine, as well as Paddling Magazine. And so I spent seven months researching the lack of diversity in whitewater. And I really didn't go into it with any agenda. I just as with every story, I want to go where the story organically takes me. And so I ended up with a five-part series on diversity, equity, inclusion, and paddle sports covering different continents. So there's Chile and Patagonia, there's United States, there's Uganda. We talked to industry leaders, and there's so much that I learned, even as a person in paddle sports. I learned a lot by talking to industry leaders, and it was just an amazing um, series. Uh, three, two parts have been released. The other three are coming soon. Um, but the other thing that I did was I met a new young woman who is an Asian American and also uh, a kayaker. She's a former competitive kayaker, actually, and her name is Lily Durkee. And we met two weeks before the lockdown. And then, you know, the protests for Jedi happened and she contacted me and said, I want to do something to help Black Indigenous people of color um, get into whitewater paddle sports. Will you join me? And she told me what her idea was. And I said immediately, yes. And so in June of 2020, we started the organization. And at the end of 2021, we had introduced 150 new Black Indigenous people of color to the sport during a pandemic safely without a single case of COVID. (laughs) And and, uh, we just this year, 2021, we're taking this nationwide, we kick off our first event next month, and we're going to have 10 events this year across the United States. 
Wow. <laughs> wow. Can you please bring that here as well? Can you make this like worldwide at, at some point? I would love to make it national, uh, international. That's why I developed Whitewater TV. It's because we knew, I knew together with Lily that we could reach the United States. But what about making adventure sports accessible to people around the world? And that's why I created Whitewater TV on XOTV for that reason. Okay. Where are we following you? How are we keeping up with everything that you're doing? <laughs> on all of my social media handles, um, Instagram and Facebook, it's at Antoinette Lee Toscano, my name, except on Twitter, I'm at Antoinette's, no apostrophe, Antoinette's pen. We're following you. And then you promise that you're coming back for a part two. Oh, I would love to come back for two, three, and four, because yeah. I want to talk with you about your paddling <laughs> adventures and feature you on Whitewater TV okay, and on your new paddle get, board. Let's get the board first, Antoinette. Let's get the board. <laughs> then we learn to stand. Then we learn to go. You know, like small steps. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I'm going to send you so many pictures. I'm going to send you all the pictures. I'm super um, excited. You know, it's, it's amazing just to end off. It's, it's, it's amazing how you, you meet people and you just connect and then those people motivate you. And then tomorrow is going to be a better day because of the conversation that I've had with you now. And I'm going to be a nicer person and it just snowballs. And I just wanted to say thank you. This has been really great. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. So lovely to meet you. I look forward to next time. Remember, you can catch the full video on xotv.me and you can meet us in kind of real life. Thanks to DJ Chuck for the music. You can catch him at www.chucksprosound.co.za. New episodes on Jackpot and XOTV every Monday. Love you.